Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. His name is Robin Wigglesworth, and he has a brand new book out called Trillions, all about the rise of passive investing and indexing. I thought I knew a lot about this space, having covered Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street, having interviewed basically all of the CEOs of Vanguard, people from BlackRock, Jim Ross from State Street, Jack Bogle, uh, all the DFA folks. I mean, I, I, I feel like I really know this space, and I learned a ton of new stuff from the book. It, it's deeply researched. He spent a lot of time uh, doing a deep dive into the area. I was kind of surprised by a number of things. If you're remotely interested in the rise of passive and indexing and all the academic background and how that translated in the real world uh, into the practice of of investing, well, I think you're going to like this book and you're going to like this conversation. With no further ado, my interview with the FT's Robin Wigglesworth. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Robin Wigglesworth. He is the Financial Times global finance correspondent, residing in Oslo, Norway. His focus is the biggest trends reshaping markets and investing, including technological disruption and quantitative investing. But more importantly, he is the author of a fascinating new book, Trillions, How a Band of Wall Street Renegades invented the index fund, and changed finance forever. Robin Wigglesworth, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks, Barry. So happy to be here. I'm happy to have you. Let, let's start with a little bit of background about you and your career. How does one go from the London School of Economics to the United Arab Emirates? Tell us about how that happened and, and how that led to a career in journalism. Uh, it's basically a happenstance. Um I thought I always wanted to be a physicist, but realized uh, eventually that I, you know, I was good at numbers, but not good enough to be anything other than a mediocre physicist. <laughs> and journalism sounded interesting. Uh, and I studied journalism, but didn't actually like that that much. So I did a master's at the LSE in international relations and political Islam. Uh, you know, it was very much sort of the topic of the day. And uh, I was working as a sub-editor at The Guardian just doing online, putting pictures and captions and things like that. And I saw a job for a financial journalist in Dubai. And I thought, well, you know, I know nothing about finance whatsoever. But, you know, Dubai sounds kind of interesting. I've studied the Middle East. This could be cool. It's either that or do my, my service in the Norwegian army. Uh, we still have conscription over here. Uh, so, yeah, I grabbed my bags and, and jetted off to Dubai to cover Islamic finance. Quite interesting. I, I totally relate to being interested in physics, but only being a mediocre um, mathematician. So there, there went that. So you're in Dubai. What was your first big story? 
Uh, a day after I landed, I interviewed the local sheikhs uh, about Islamic reinsurance, which is as esoteric as it sounds. Uh, so Islamic insurance is actually called takaful, and Islamic reinsurance is called a retakaful. Uh, and it's actually got a quite a cool, interesting twist to it. Fundamentally, Islamic finance is all about risk sharing, that you're not supposed to get money for nothing. So uh, famously, interest is banned. It's haram uh, in, under Sharia. So there are various workarounds there that range essentially from gimmicks to actual serious, interesting mechanisms to make sure that people share in the risk and the reward equally. And it was fascinating. I was petrified. I knew nothing about insurance, reinsurance, and certainly not Islamic reinsurance. Uh, but, you know, it just, it fascinated me. I loved learning about new things. And here I was getting paid to learn about something new and interesting from interesting people. So I, I, I fell in love with journalism that day and have never left and, and never will leave the huh. industry. Really quite interesting. So let's talk a little bit about journalism. Uh, the FT is printed five days a week. That's right. There's no weekend edition. The The New York Times is seven days. The Wall Street Journal is six days. What's it like having to shove all that content into the maw of that <laughs> daily beast? How, how, how much of a stressor is needing to keep the beast filled? Uh, well, it's actually a lot of fun. I mean, it's stressful, but it's not stressful compared to a lot of other jobs out there. My wife is a nurse. She used to work in a cancer ward. Uh, that certainly helps give a bit of perspective. Sure. And, uh, and you know, my, my first job in sort of a, a big mainstream organization was actually Bloomberg News. And that's a you know, competitive, driven organization. And, you know, it was very much oriented around news and, yeah, feeding the beast and getting stuff out there quickly. And I loved it. You know, I always joke that, you know, I've been at the FT far longer now, but if you cut me, I still bleed a little bit of orange. Uh, <laughs> it really sort of left its mark. So, uh, you know, these days, actually, my job is fantastically relaxed because I primarily write columns, features, um, long form stuff and, and the occasional book when time allows it. And this was your first book. Did did you have to stop working uh, to dive into this, or was this a side project? Well, it started off as a side project because it overlaps a lot with my day job. Uh, you know, I cover passive investing a lot. It's one of the biggest trends uh, in markets and finance these days. Uh, but my plan was to take a decent chunk of 2020 off to write it. So I've been doing research on an ongoing basis, but writing is something I find, at least long form, I need to devote you know, a big chunk of time to do it properly. Unfortunately, when COVID hit, I had to, those plans just completely collapsed. There was no chance I could take any time off work. I was essentially doing two full-time jobs, trying to homeschool the children because my wife was not home. She was a nurse. And uh, yeah, writing this every time I had like a spare evening, a weekend, every holiday in 2020, and parts of 2021 went to this book. So uh, it, it, I think it worked, but I think if I'm ever going to write a book again, I'm going to definitely manage to carve out some proper time off and pray that there isn't uh, another pandemic. <laughs> to say the least. So uh, you, you've been writing about markets and investing for well over a decade. What do you think the investing public 
doesn't know about the business of news that, that they really should know? It's a really interesting question. I get this a lot. In fact, sometimes we discuss it internally. Um, I think one thing that surprises people that isn't purely business-related, uh, but it's the, the lack of a house view, and even, frankly, politics in, in journalism. I think, fundamentally, most journalists actually just think like journalists. Uh, it's a culture rather than politics. And we right. think in terms of good and bad stories, rather than pandering to owners, advertisers, and so on, the way that many people think it operates. Right. A lot of what outsiders attribute to ideology or commercial imperatives is sometimes simply the culture of journalism for good and bad. But on the business side, I mean, it's no secret that running or working at a newspaper is not a great way to get rich these days. Uh, to paraphrase uh, Richard Branson, I think uh, the best way to become a newspaper millionaire is probably to start off as a billionaire and buy a newspaper. <laughs> But I think where I change, but I'm a little bit different from a lot of my colleagues, uh, is that I'm actually quite optimistic on journalism as in the practice of it, as opposed to the business or the future for journalists. Because I actually think the quality is getting better on average, not worse. We just have so many more tools at our disposal. There's so much exciting stuff going on. So I, I try to remain an optimist. And I, I still think this is just a phenomenally fun uh, thing to do. I'm going to agree with you, but I'm also going to credit the non-journalists for forcing journalism to up its game, at least in the finance space. Historically, financial media coverage, especially in the 90s and 2000s, it was it was really superficial and uh, a lot of clickbait and and you know just w what is the sexiest, flashiest thing. And I think a lot of people from from bloggers to now Substack and newsletter writers forced a reckoning where the major media outlets had to, had to up their game. They used to be pretty mediocre. They're not. They're much better than they once were. No, I, I completely agree, actually. Uh, I think, you know, the dirty secret uh, is really that nobody used to dream of being a financial journalist when they grew up, right? You know, I'm no different. I wanted to be a war correspondent. Uh, I got to play a war correspondent for half a year during the Arab Spring when I worked at the FT, and it was incredibly exciting. But just the intellectual stimulation of financial journalism is just incredible. And I think the financial crisis was the tipping point. That before then, people ended up in financial journalism because that's where the jobs were for a long time. Right. And they generally paid better than other jobs. But since the financial crisis kind of hammered home to absolutely everybody how essential business, finance, economics, markets are, I, I just see the quality of the graduate trainees we have coming in is just so much better than, when, frankly, when I applied for jobs. And these are people that want to be financial journalists, that actually know and have, you know, ex expertise far beyond what I had when I stumbled into that conference room to talk to a sheikh about Islamic reinsurance. So uh, I, I definitely think things are getting better. Yeah, I, th I think you're, you're absolutely on to something with that. Let's talk a little bit about passive investing in index funds. It's really well-trod ground. There's only so much to say about it. What inspired you to write a whole long history of it? Well, as I mentioned, you know, the, the rise of passive investing was something that I, I was covering 
maybe not daily, but a lot. It was sort of the, the overall backdrop to almost everything I was writing about for a long time when I when led the, the markets coverage for the Financial Times in New York. And, you know, it was unambiguously this hugely important story that was not just uh, affecting the investment industry. We know, obviously, the pressures it's brought on fees, but reshaping how the financial industry works in many ways. And investment banks were retooling their trading desks to deal with this phenomenon. Markets were functioning and acting differently in the era of passive investing. So I started scratching around into the backstory of this. I mean, I'm not just a financial nerd, uh, become one. I have always loved history. And I, I, I do believe that we understand better where we're going if we understand where we came from. And lo and behold, the history of the invention of passive investing was just far more interesting than I dared to hope. It was just filled with these combative, titanic personalities having huge arguments and getting shunned by their own industry. So, you know, when, when you're a journalist and you have a combination of an important story and a fun story, you just you have everything you need or you, you have everything you should need. And the more time I spent with it, I realized, no, this isn't just a magazine piece or a long feature. This, this would make, I hope, a, a really gripping book, a way to kind of explain this huge important trend, but through the prism of these people and, and what they did and who they were, because they were just fascinating people, really. So let's talk about this history. As I was reading the book, I was surprised how deeply researched it felt. Tell us how you did this deep dive. How did you uncover all the little tidbits that you did? Yeah, there's a, there's a published history. You have Bogle's biography, and there's a bunch of other stuff out there. But you really went very deep into this space. Well, I mean, it, it sounds incredibly um, uh, over the top. But you know, Isaac Newton once said, if I've seen further, it's because I stood on the shoulders of giants. And I am no Isaac Newton. But like you say, I stood on the shoulders of many giants that went before me. So Jack Bogle famously wrote many, many books. But there are many people that have written about parts of this. You know, people, journalists at Bloomberg have written phenomenally interesting features about the birth of ETFs. Uh, Peter Bernstein, the financial uh, yeah. historian, has written a really interesting book on, on, on Wall Street in the 70s and the academic ferment then. Um, so what I tried to do was essentially combine and synthesize all these disparate sources and combine them with just, I mean, God knows, hundreds of, of interviews with, you know, primary characters, secondary characters, other people that fill in blank there and there, and just an exhaustive dive through the archives of institutional investor and pensions and investments and the Wall Street Journal, and combine that into one holistic narrative. But essentially, it was just a lot of work and juggling a lot of different strands of information, and then cross-checking what person A said versus what person B said, and what the contemporaneous newspapers might have said at the time. Because, you know, as, as the cliche goes, success has, has many parents, you know, the index fund is definitely a, a success story. And there have been many people that after the fact, sometimes seek to, you know, paint, um, repaint history a little bit, maybe to give it a bit of a sheen that it might not always have had. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. So I'm going to skip over some of the early history, the Wells Fargo, Samsonite, and a lot of the academic history, and just fast forward us up to Vanguard, because it, in your telling, it, it almost looks like the index itself was irrelevant. The, the Jack Bogle, the founder and first CEO of Vanguard, his cost matters hypothesis um, almost made the the group of holdings irrelevant. It was the fees that mattered most. Uh, discuss that a bit. No, it's a great point. And I, I think Jack Bogle is a far more complicated character than, frankly, he pretended himself and a lot of people um, see him as. I mean, he was undisputably, you know, one of the great men of history. I mean, he is one of the most incredible people I've ever had the, the privilege of interviewing. But I actually think he's more interesting than he pretended himself because he was not a necessarily a fan of indexing, not even right, in all his time right. at Vanguard. This was, you know, this is an accident, a fortunate accident. In his defense, he was definitely always a fan of low-cost investing. That seems to be backed up with his writing going back to his days when he was a wonder boy at Wellington. He was a senior executive at Wellington and, and the, the heir apparent to Walter Morgan there. Uh, he, and he liked the idea of mutualization, or at least he at least had thought of it before Vanguard was set up and with its unique ownership structure being owned by its own funds. Let, let me stop you there and jump in, because in your telling, the mutualization of Vanguard also seemed like an accident. It was a function of their contract that they previously had with the company, they were with Wellington, that they ostensibly were trying to get free from. Uh, the idea of a passively managed index was, hey, it's unmanaged, therefore it doesn't violate our manage no managed funds contract and the idea of creating a mutual allowed them to escape a, a fee structure they didn't want to be involved in am, am i overstating that or is that a, a fair assessment no i think so but i mean so jack would often afterwards talk about you know strategy follows structure so if we start with the structure the reason why vanguard is mutually owned is not just because jack bogle liked the idea of mutualization, which he did, but I doubt he would have mutualized if he'd stayed the CEO of Wellington. Right. But the fact is that he merged Wellington with a hotshot go-go fund manager from Boston in the 60s. And when the 60s go-go era ended with a bang, essentially the other people, his partners, owned more stock than he did, and they sacked him as CEO. So as a Hail Mary, he went to the board of the Wellington Funds, because all mutual funds need to have their own independent boards, in theory at least in the U.S., and try to argue that they should essentially buy themselves out of Wellington. And this was – it was a Hail Mary. And frankly, you know, the, the legal representation at the time was very clear that you know, the SEC will not like this. Clients can sue us. Wellington can sue us. So as a favor to Jack Bogle, the boards of the Wellington funds, the independent boards of the Wellington funds, said that they'd set up an administrative company. They just did all the clerking jobs, all the paperwork 
for the funds that would be owned by the funds themselves. But the investment management, the distribution, the research, the trading, all the sexy part of investment management would stay with Wellington. But Jack Bogle, basically this really, you know, first of all, the sacking hurt him. And he used this as his platform to essentially get revenge on the Boston partners that sacked him. And like you say, index funds, he later said that he'd never even heard of this until he read about it uh, in a Paul Samuelson article. And I think that is, first of all, just factually inaccurate because he pseudonymously wrote an article right. attacking the idea of index funds anonymously, you know, many years earlier. But he also saw the potential, right? And he saw that this was unmanaged. It was a gimmick. It was a, essentially a ploy to get out from under the thumb of the Boston partners. And it worked. Quite interesting. Let's talk a little bit about State Street. They're the first ones to market with the spiders, SPY. It's become one of the largest ETFs ever. Tell us how that came about. Well, essentially, that story starts with Nate Most, uh, who was this unusually brilliant, eclectic, pretty old by, by then, uh, head of derivatives product development at the Amex. The American Stock Exchange, you know, very old, came out of the curbside in New York, uh, but kind of found derivatives as a way to kind of try to stay relevant in an era where you had Nisey as the, the big brother that dominated uh, listings and uh, NASDAQ was kind of the hot rising exchange. And, but they still, they needed to find something. So Nate Mose had the brilliant idea together with one of his partners uh, called Stephen Bloom to basically list tradable index funds. They thought they might go somewhere like Vanguard, for example, and get Bogle to list index funds on the Amex so people could trade them throughout the day because then they might get more customers and the Amex will get trading revenues. Now, it turns out that Bogle absolutely hated the idea. He, it was just anathema to him, the idea that you trade a fund in and out all the time. He wanted people to buy a Vanguard 500 fund and hold it forever. So... He uh, turned them down, and uh, Nate Most went to State Street instead. And State Street had a big institutional business in indexing. So they thought, well, yeah, we could totally do this. This is probably possible. Uh, but it took years and years and years. And ironically, um, a group of Canadian exchanges managed to um, essentially copy the, the plans. And they got help from the Amex, because the Amex didn't see them as a straight competitor, and managed actually to list. This isn't widely known. The first ever ETF is actually listed in Canada. They managed to just steal ahead of the State Street and Amex team because the SEC was very, very slow about this very newfangled product uh, that had a lot of hair on it, essentially. But that's how that happened. And uh, it's quite a journey from where it was to where it is today. Uh, to say the least, and it's become, you know, a few bips. And, you know, the the interesting story, and I recall this in, I think, the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago. Hey, how did State Street end up losing their lead? They're, they're one of the pioneers in the U.S. on both passive and ETF. How did they get dethroned by Vanguard and BlackRock? It's a great question that actually, look, I, I have an answer in uh, my book, but it is an answer. Uh, I think sometimes these things happen. But I think it came down to basically State Street not realizing what it had in its hands. So you have to remember that this was primarily an Amex idea. 
But right. C3 did because it worked well with their strategy. But index fees on the institutional side were under massive pressure. So they just didn't think of indexing as a potential cash cow. They didn't see the potential of ETFs as these basically Lego-like bricks that you can build broad portfolios with. So they did it, and they put some money into it. They just didn't invest enough. And at the beginning, ETFs was not a great business. Ironically, Barclays Global Investors did also launch soon afterwards something called WEBS, World Equity Benchmark uh, securities, which is kind of a copy of uh, of of the spider that uh, Amex and State Street had done, webs and spider. That was like the intentional gimmick, and they'd also struggled. But what BGI later did under you know CEO Patty Dunn, I think one of the great underestimated CEOs in American corporate history, and pretty remarkable for being you know, not just a woman but also somebody who rose from to be secretary to CEO and chairman. Uh, she, together with a guy called Lee Cranefuss, realized the potential of this, got Barclays, the UK bank, to commit to massive funding. And they essentially did what Silicon Valley today call blitzscaling. They basically launched tons of ETFs, just chucked ETFs out there right. and realized if you're first, you can win, you can become the incumbent. So I think it was a mix of State Street kind of doing fine, but not realizing the importance of what they invented and BGI eventually realizing it and just chucking resources at it. So, so Vanguard, I think, is later done well purely because it's Vanguard and they have an enormously positive brand among retail investors. So let's stick with BGI. How did, how did we go from Barclays to iShares to BlackRock? Give us that history. Well, it goes back to the, the first index fund, uh, conveniently for my book narrative, of course. Uh, but Wells Fargo uh, set up a new inter a, a unit called Wells Fargo Investment Advisors, Advisors, WFIA, to house the first index funds that they did. Now, the issue with WFIA was that it was filled with lots of brilliant academics. I mean, it's 1.6 Nobel laureates consulted for that unit. Uh, it was one of the biggest economic think tanks in history, I'd argue. Um, but they cost money, and index funds didn't pay a lot of money. So WFIA was always incredibly brilliant, but didn't actually turn a profit until the 80s. So then it was taken over. It basically almost came close to collapsing uh, in a battle between WFIA and Wells Fargo, the mothership. But eventually, uh, they hired a guy called Fred Grauer, and he managed to turn the ship around just as the U.S. stock market started on the biggest, strongest bull run it's ever had, pretty much. And, you know, so there's a bit of luck and a bit of skill. But then he merged it with uh, a Japanese asset manager, but eventually managed to sell the whole thing to Barclays, to merge, merge it with Barclays Asset Management Unit, um, but essentially just became WFIA 2.0, but under the name of Barclays Global Investors. And that was where Webb's, was invented first. And that was a bit of a, a, a nothing burger, frankly. Webs became iShares. And then BlackRock could see where the world was going, where the investment world was going quicker than many other people. And when Barclays was up the creek without a paddle at all uh, in the financial crisis, Barclays um, basically had to sell the family silver. And BlackRock was quicker. And cheap too, And right? they pay, were willing to pay more. 
historically, it looks like it was a pretty cheap sale. What Do you recall what this uh, was sold to BlackRock for? Well, the agreed price was $13.5 billion in cash and equity. So by the time the deal closed at the end of 2009, I think it was the, the final tag because BlackRock shares had gone up was around $15 billion. But yes, I mean, by far, probably the great, I mean, certainly the greatest deal in the history of asset management and probably the greatest deal in the financial industry as a whole. And possibly, I mean, I'm, I'm struggling to think of a such a slam dunk in hindsight, uh, acquisition in in the history of M and A, really. Right. So obviously, the history of M and A is littered with with car crashes. <laughs> to put put some numbers on it, BlackRock now manages a little over a little under nine and a half trillion. That's trillion with a T, like the title of your book. And their market cap is is just under one hundred and forty billion. That that fifteen billion dollar acquisition is really. You know, just world beating. Talk talk about ROI. It, it's quite amazing. It's incredible. I mean, it's just. I mean, you can see it on the profits. I mean, bro, BlackRock is more profitable than you know Google. I mean, the profit margins in asset management are actually quite good, despite you know the pressure that the industry is under. Uh, the dirty secret is that it's actually quite a profitable industry, and BlackRock is you know best in class, and it is largely thanks to the acquisition of BGI and its ETF unit iShares and the broader indexing universe. And a lot of the more quantitative investing side uh, that they also inherited along with the purchase. So it's been incredible. I mean, you know, basically the BGI now is just that part. If you split that out, I'd argue that's probably worth more than all of Barclays today. Hmm. Barclays has essentially gone nowhere. And BlackRock is now bigger than Goldman Sachs in market cap. Right, quite, quite amazing. We were talking a little earlier about how deeply researched the book was. Uh, how much access did you get? Because a lot of these figures are still around. They're, they're not youngsters anymore. Um, and Jack Bogle passed a few years ago. But a lot of the main characters in the book, they're still all uh, around. Did, did you get access uh, to people like Bill Sharp and, and David Booth and Gene Fama? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, my access was great for the most part. I mean, I genuinely do think most humans are actually quite helpful if you, you know, make sure that you, you impress upon them that you're not going to be wasting their time. And some people, like you say, had sadly passed away, like Louis Bekele obviously passed away almost a century ago. Jim Verton uh, at Wells Fargo was an important figure. He passed away just before I started reporting it. Bill Faust passed away in the process of it. Nate Most passed a few away quite a few years ago. And there were some people who I won't name that just didn't respond to emails or calls or just you can said, name Look, them. Who 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 were the difficult people in, in getting the book together? You don't feel no, free to I possibly feel free to shame them. <laughs> no, I mean they know who they are. Let's put it that way. All right, but broadly that's fair. speaking, look, I mean people are busy, and maybe they're working on their own book project and don't want to give away the crown jewels, as it were. Um, so uh, there are many reasons why people decline to interview. And I have to admit, like, as a journalist, I want everybody to talk to me all the time. But I think, you know, you have to be understanding that not everybody feels comfortable with that. Uh, and a lot of people were incredibly generous with their time, including Gene Farmer, I spoke to many times, Mac McQuown, David Booth, Bill Sharp is an incredibly kind, generous, interesting, genial man. And a lot of these people are in their 80s, and some of them are in the, almost in their 90s. And I swear, if I'm half as sharp at half the age, I'd be a very lucky man. There's yeah, something about finance and economics that seem to keep a lot of people quite young. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Well, that's a little bit of survivorship bias uh, in, in the sample set because you're only speaking to people who are alive. Literal survivorship bias. Tell us about something with, without spoiling the ending. Tell us something from the book that was really surprising because I'm going to share a few things with you that I was genuinely surprised about. But what surprised you? I'm looking forward to hearing what you think. I mean, I think that the, the Bogle issue that we touched upon uh, was really interesting that he was a far more multifaceted character uh, than I think people realize. And I wish I knew all the stuff uh, I know now know and could talk to him about it. Not because it's salacious or anything like that, but he's, he's become even more of a hero in my eyes because he is more multifaceted. Uh, I think that was really interesting. Uh, and probably, sadly, a lot of people only felt comfortable talking about some of this stuff uh, after he passed away in 2019. Uh, uh, one thing that didn't surprise me in the research, but actually sort of happened almost fortuitously in the middle of writing my book, but it was the the stress test that happened for the ETF ecosystem in March 2020. I guess fortunately is the wrong word, because obviously that was a horrific period for the world. And I was generally worried that we were going to have a Obviously, we're having a global health crisis and an economic crisis, but we were perilously close to having a financial crisis on top. And especially bond ETFs came under a massive pressure. And before the fact, I would have predicted that we would have had serious breakages. But I was actually positively surprised by the resiliency of bond ETFs in March 2020. And I know a lot of people don't agree with me on that, but I think that was one of my big takeaways that I've moved from cautious skeptic, virgin cautious optimist on, on ETFs and credit ETFs to being more wholehearted behind that this is actually a, a more resilient, supple uh, product than people sometimes give it credit for. So first, you're 100% right, and the proof is in the pudding. The people, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of the criticisms of passive and indexing and ETFs mm. uh, in a bit, but if ever there was an opportunity for, for those vehicles to collapse, well, not only did they all survive 08, 09 fine and the flash crash in 2010 and later, but they came through 2020. I mean, how many disasters do these products have to live through before people will admit, hey, they seem to be robust and resilient. They survived just fine. Yeah. No, I, I think... People look at the Federal Reserve's intervention, the extraordinarily aggressive intervention, as a bailout of ETFs. And Not even close. I definitely think like the Fed bailed out markets and they did buy ETFs. But I am increasingly convinced, having talked to people about this and been digging around this for a while, that we came far closer to mass closure of bond mutual funds, traditional bond mutual funds, than we did serious breakages in the credit ETF ecosystem. Uh, uh, those structures might not be perfect, and maybe the next crisis will reveal some fault line we don't know about. But I think that 
nobody can be honestly look at March 2020 and what happened there. And you know, people from the Federal Reserve to the Bank of Canada and other people have looked at this and all come broadly to the same conclusion that credit ETFs were at worst not a contributor to the issues and actually probably in some respects helped dampen right. some of the issues we saw uh, in the financial system at the time. Dampener is, is a really good, good word for that. Let, let's stay with the book. There's a quote from Paul Samuelson I, I really like that you referenced. He ranks the birth of the Vanguard 500 funds alongside things like the invention of the wheel, the alphabet, the printing press, wine and cheese. Uh, is he overstating this a bit? What, that That's really, um, you know, he left out fire. But other than that, how is an index fund <laughs> comparable to the wheel and, and the alphabet? Samuelson, aside from being, you know, one of the world's greatest economists, I mean, his, his textbooks are quite literally still the textbooks that most uh, economists read. Um, he was he would he was a bit of a joker as well. He liked tweaking people. So I think there's a fair bit uh -huh. of over the top wittiness there. But he genuinely did believe that this was uh, an incredibly important invention because you can imagine. You know, sometimes the gains of this are so ephemeral that we we don't really focus on it. But the fact is that everybody on the planet, pretty much, who has savings, uh, has benefited from the indexing revolution, even if they don't invest in index funds. Because of the price competition that they've brought, not only can you now put money in an index fund that, you know, I've seen people calculate, have saved Americans just in the past 25 years, $350 billion dollars. They've saved all of us trillions of dollars in total because the average cost of a mutual fund or a hedge fund even has fallen by a third over the past two, three decades. And maybe that would have happened without the invention of the index fund, but I, I don't think so to the same extent. And you know, these sums are going to be in the trillions. So in a small way, but an important way, the invention of this is helping hundreds of millions of people have a little bit more for retirement than they normally would have. So is it fire or the, the printing press? No. But is it genuinely one of the finest financial innovations in history and certainly of the past 50 years? Unambiguously, I would say yes. Yeah, no, uh, you're not going to get any disagreement uh, from me about that. Um, uh, in the U.S., passive has been pretty robust. Uh, more than half of the mutual fund and ETF world is now consumed by, by passive. It hasn't quite caught on as aggressively in the rest of the world, but there are signs that's changing. Tell us about this as a, you know, not necessarily U.S.-only phenomena. How quickly is the rest of the world catching on to passive as an investing strategy? No, it's, it's an interesting theme seeing this become more globalized. I mean, clearly the, the, um, you know, the, the origin story of, of index funds is, is clearly American. Uh, even though, you know, they, the origin story of, of pooled investment trust goes back to the Netherlands and the UK and, and um, hundreds of years ago. Um, it has caught on in certain markets, but it depends a lot. And this is somewhat technical and dull, but the distribution models. Take Europe, for example. In Europe, the overwhelming distribution mechanism for investment funds is banks. Banks are the central locus 
And banks tend to not want to steer people into cheap products managed by other people. They tend to steer people into products that they manage themselves and have pretty hefty fees. So you can almost see there's a not a perfect correlation, but a pretty close one between, you know, how dominant banks are in distribution and the adoption of passive. Hmm. So there are some markets where this has gotten pretty far. And there are some markets where there is a lot of quasi-passive. Take Japan, for example. There are a lot of investors there that might not say that they are passive or this isn't an index fund, but they are essentially passive. Um, But clearly, this is something that works elsewhere, that there are some markets that are less efficient. Emerging markets are less efficient than large cap US equities. So you can see that active managers do do better there on average before and after fees. But in the long run, they still underperform the index. So I think the data is a really hard taskmaster here. And as the data becomes more widely known in more markets, whether China or India or Europe or Norway, where I'm based, it's just going to grow and grow and grow. Because I I think there's a lot of room for money to shift from expensive, on average, underperforming products to cheap, passive ones. Huh. Really, really quite interesting. Last question before I share my surprises from the book with you. Mm. What sort of pushback did you get? And any uh, hold aside the people who who ghosted you and never responded to emails. Any of the organizations or individuals push back? Vanguard, DFA, BlackRock. Anybody say, uh, "Hey, your conception of this is all wrong." No, the, they they were all helpful, but to very varying degrees and at various times. Maybe one organization was full on thought, this is an amazing story. Yes, we'll love to help you tell it. And then they suddenly ghosted me and refused to answer my emails. Um, And broadly speaking, as you might imagine, that the chapters that deal with more present day issues were more sensitive than the historical ones. Even though the historical ones were in many ways harder to report because, frankly, a lot of them characters had sadly passed away or memories had dimmed sufficiently that it was sometimes hard to piece everything together. But broadly speaking, I have to say, you know, whether it's a BlackRock or a Dimensional or Vanguard or State Street, you know, people were incredibly helpful. I mean, the journalist lives and dies by their sources. And my book would be a pile of crap if I hadn't gotten so much help from so many individual people sometimes at these organizations, because sometimes the organization itself might be standoffish, but there might be other people in there that decide, actually, I'm just going to help out anyway. Because fundamentally, most humans are actually kind of helpful. So, you know, I I cannot fault anybody really on everything. I'd love people to have opened up their personal email correspondence or letter correspondence going back 50 years. But within you know what was realistic, I I, I, I don't have any major complaints. Huh, really interesting. All right, so I'm going to share two things in particular that I was genuinely surprised at in the book, and I kind of knew around these some of the things, but I did, I certainly didn't know all of it. And and the first was just how really incidental the index was along with the mutual structure to the rise of Vanguard. Uh, There's no doubt in my mind Vanguard would have been successful regardless, but there's an incredible amount of just good fortune that 
turn Vanguard into a behemoth. Is, is that a fair statement? I, I think so. I mean, I think maybe the secret here is really that in any success story, we sometimes over-attribute it to the brilliance of the people involved. Right. And under-attribute it to just blind luck sometimes. I mean, uh, when I think of my life, I'm sure you can do the same with yours. And oh, lots for sure. of people we know, you know, luck and serendipity, you can be good at taking advantage of that break. And Jack Bogle was unambiguously brilliant. And like you say, you know, he was not going to die a failure almost whatever he did. But a lot of it was timing. I mean, literally, just imagine that Jack Bogle, the reason why he ended up in investment management was just he happened to be at Princeton's library and reading out the Fortune magazine that had an article about this hot new invention called the mutual fund. And he thought it was interesting and cool. So he wrote his thesis about that. And that got him his first job at, at Wellington. And then he got sacked from Wellington by the right. people he'd merged with. Imagine if he hadn't. Imagine if Wellington had decided, no, we are not going to merge with anybody. We're just going to keep plowing on with our boring conservative funds that look really unsexy in the go-go 1960s when everybody wanted Xerox and IBM. It was the first dot-com bubble. You know, actually, Wellington would have looked really good when the dot, basically the, the, the 60s bubble burst in the 70s because they would have looked really steady. And he probably would have retired eventually as an immensely successful, but largely anonymous CEO of a major mutual fund company in America. And nobody mm. would really know the name Jack Bogle outside of some corners of finance. So his sacking actually ended up being the making of him. And then huh. even when, like, when they basically formed Vanguard, there's so many little lucky breaks that happened. Uh, you know, him just reading an article by Paul Samuelson about indexing when he was sitting there stewing and angry and wondering what he was going to do with this new grandiose, grandiosely named administrative company called Vanguard. I mean, it was a company that did paperwork for mutual funds called Vanguard. It had to do something sexy, but he didn't know what it was until he read Paul Samuelson's article saying, hey, I see lots of really interesting pension plans are doing some interesting stuff around index funds. I wish somebody would do this for ordinary investors. Hmm. What if he hadn't read that article? So it is incredible to think about this. And I love this in all history books, all stories about people, really, just how much serendipity plays a role in how events turn out. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You know, to say the say the very least, we we seem to often be one random left instead of a right away from the world being very different than it turns out. Uh, the second thing I wanted to ask about that I was shocked, having interviewed Bogle once and Jack Brennan twice, is I had no idea about that fallout. That fallout is really something substantial and you know obviously neither of them advertise it uh brennan s still speaks very glowingly uh, uh about bogle and the opportunity he created but uh that that really was kind of a surprise how 
everybody stopped talking to each other. No, it was, you know, people can fall out and good friends can fall out and maybe stay enemies or, or don't talk to each other for a long time. But this was far beyond that. And I have to admit that I think I have the broad contours of what happened. But the two main people, Jack Brennan and Jack Bogle, have never, ever talked, not just publicly about this, but frankly, to even people that know them. I spent a lot of time talking to some of the people who are very close to both men, and none of them said they really knew the exact details of this schism. But I think it was incredibly painful for both because they were so close. I mean, Jack Brennan played the role that Bogle had played for Walter Morgan at Wellington before, the heir apparent, the boy wonder, and he was the yin to Bogle's yang. Bogle was all vision and charisma and statesman-like behavior, and Brennan was probably, again, one of the great underrated CEOs of America, just somebody who everybody I talked to said he was a phenomenal manager, that Vanguard would not nearly be what it is today if he hadn't taken it over at the right time. But, yeah, they fell out. And, you know, I I have in the book, you know, the broad contours. It was Bogle's heart failure, and he basically couldn't keep working. So he handed the reins over to Brennan, and then he got a heart transplant and made a miraculous recovery. And when he came back, essentially thought that he was going to take over the company again. And that ended up with a a big battle with the board, and the board sided with Brennan. And, and he was no spring thing. chicken at that point, right? I mean, there was a mandatory retirement age coming up regardless. Yes. And it was a mandatory retirement age that Bogle had instituted himself. Right. But I think, I mean, clearly the board, and this was Bogle's argument, the board could have overturned that if they wanted to. The dirty, I mean, it's not even dirty, the obvious secret here that everybody knew at the time and all the press knew, you can see it sort of in the subtext of the writing, was that, yes, the board could obviously have overturned this, but they thought that Brennan was a better CEO for the vanguard of that time than Bogle. And, and you do a Bogle, nice job in the book explaining that, hey, Brennan could not have founded or launched Vanguard. It needed someone who was more visionary. It, you know, the parallels today are Steve Jobs as the visionary behind Apple, but Tim Cook is the guy who makes the trains run on time. The the you know, the operations wizard, that parallel is very much there with, with Brennan and Bogle. No, exactly. And I think it's it's something we see again and again in corporate history that different types of CEOs work at different points of a company's lifespan. You know, you just think of in personal relationships, who you might have dated in when you're in your when you're eighteen, nineteen is not necessarily who you maybe should end up married to, right? And Brennan was exactly the person that Vanguard needed and, frankly, had been running the place for quite a few years before he formally took over. The tragedy was that they never made up. Bogle did kiss and make up with the Boston partners that had fired him decades earlier. He'd read a story about Hamilton and Jefferson and how they made up and was inspired and got in touch with them. And they used to hang out together. But he never made up with Brennan. Uh, even on his deathbed, when people, some of their friends, trying to engineer some sort of rapprochement, and he refused, and that, that's it's just tragic. Yeah, that that was the single biggest surprise uh, in the book to me. Also, I, I want to push back on some of the criticism of indexing because uh, let, let, let me just start off with this Paul Singer quote: "We are always amazed." 
by decent ideas and insights which are stretched so far beyond their original version that they become caricatures of themselves and sometimes contrafunctional. So, so that's a true statement, except I don't see how this applies to either passive or indexing. Uh, what's the beef with indexing other than it's costing Wall Street a lot of fees? It's costing big firms um, to have to provide more services at a lower charge. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, what's the problem with passive? <laughs> no, it, it is. It's the uh, you know twenty trillion dollar question now, probably right. Um, so clearly, you know, you cannot entirely disentangle the criticism from the fact that this is essentially a cheap, simple product being offered in an industry that does not like cheap, simple products <laughs> that thrives For on sure. complexity and expense. Uh, but I think I think sometimes indexing proponents, including me and you, right, we sometimes it's too easy to dismiss the criticism as pure sour grapes, right? I think at some point you, you, you need to at least try to engage on the factual basis. And I think there are some areas that I think are essentially uh, total bull, the criticism or right. close to total bull. And so wait, you, you think, don't oh, believe that theory. indexing is a communist plot or anti-American, <laughs> right? No, I do not. I think it's very much, you know, it's a free market, you know. Uh, it's almost the, the perfect uh, embodiment of capitalism. Uh, what, what about no, the criticism so. that, hey, all these companies know they're all owned by big indexes, so they're going to get together and conspire to fix prices. I don't mean the investment companies, but hey, all the banks are owned by the same companies and all the airlines, and we're going to see price fixing. Yes. Yeah, so this is the, the common ownership theory. Um, so it has many facets to it. So fundamentally, I do think this is one of the, the thornier ones. I do not think I am convinced that you know these companies, these investment companies are not getting together with portfolio <laughs> companies because they are BlackRock and Vanguard own, yes, a big chunk of every major bank in America and every major airline and every major hotel group and telling them to essentially fix prices. Uh, Wait, but why, why wouldn't they do that? Isn't there a ton of upside for them in, in their struggling businesses? Wouldn't they want to engage in illegal antitrust behavior because they're all doing so poorly? I, I mean, the theme, the thesis could be one of the stupidest ideas I've ever heard in either finance or legal, that these three giant, wildly successful companies who couldn't care less about the cost of hotels or airline tickets are somehow going to engage in a conspiracy to fix prices. I, I, I don't like I'm looking for some rationality there. And it's just talk about flinging stuff against the wall to see what sticks. Well, I mean, so boiling it down, it's about whether incentives matter. And I think that we can all agree that incentives in some form or fashion do matter in sure. how we structure the modern economy. And I think I, I completely agree that there is no cartel behavior whatsoever going on. And I think the, the example, the, the, the perfect example that people have kind of shown in data, but kind of struggles in the face of common, uh, just, just common sense is airlines. The idea that airlines, you could see that, you know, where there's great cross-holding between investment managers and airlines, they seem to compete less aggressively. The problem is, of course, there's hardly an industry that's gone more serially bankrupt for, what, right. half a century than airlines. 
Massive consolidation. Uh, what are there like dumped, four? Yeah. What are there four major carriers today? There used to be fourteen. It, it, it's yeah. just they they you know that's the exception that proves the rule. They had to use airlines, but they ignored technology. They ignored finance. They ignored consumers. There's a million other sectors that they had to ignore because there's no evidence. So almost randomly, you know, airlines have never been a good business at least dating back to Kitty Hawk. And so think yeah. about all the airline companies that have gone belly up. It shows you if you're going to use airlines as your example and you're going to ignore technology or consumer goods or finance, you've already lost. You've admitted your your thesis is intellectually bankrupt. Well, I mean, so we need to split out the theory from the, the evidence. And I agree that the reason why they use airline is purely that they had very granular data on the cost of individual lines and competition between hubs and so on. So right. this is what they had good data for. The theory is, and again, this is something that, you know, I can, I, I am very much on the fence on and probably leaning towards skepticism. But the idea that if you are a CEO of a company and you know your major shareholders are also the major shareholders in all your competitors, does that somehow, even subconsciously, dent your willingness to compete aggressively, even by a little bit? Now, I think there are all sorts of other incentives embedded in a CEO's job. I mean, just the fact that obviously they, uh, their comp is usually tied to share price. So if competition makes sense, then they will compete aggressively. But it is within, I think, theoretical possibility that if you are the CEO of a company and your major shareholders are all major shareholders in your rivals, that you might be slightly on the margin less inclined to compete aggressively. That is at least possible. But I, I see these concerns as more a manifestation of this wider concern that the big three, State Street, BlackRock and Vanguard, but primarily Vanguard and BlackRock, are just so enormously gigantic now and are just going to get bigger and bigger. And this was you know, something that bothered even Jack Bogle before he passed away. So, so two put pieces of pushback on this, and you could see I've spent some time thinking and, and writing mm. about this. The first is everybody wants to talk about the fund industry, but that's a tiny percentage of the overall assets. Yeah, more than half, 50-something percent, of mutual funds and ETFs are passive, not active. But, you know, that's a $20, $25 trillion industry out of $100-plus trillion. The vast majority of stocks, bonds, and other assets are still owned actively outside of funds. So within that little group, you're going to ignore the balance of the ownership structure of your – That that's what makes this a fevered dream of, of – law professors and and not reality <laughs> i mean the reality is no. most equities are held actively majority of funds are passive but funds are a minority of of investing dollars tell me where that's wrong no no i i agree and like i said i'm the reason why i say i'm still on the fence rather than fully you know shrugging off this theory it's not just a concern about where we are now, but where we are heading, right? Right. I mean, given the, the economics of indexing, uh, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard are already 
you know, the biggest and the cheapest providers of index funds and in funds in general. And this is a, an oligopoly that benefits us in the form of cheaper investments. But they now account for around a quarter of all votes cast on average in the US. The proxies are certainly companies. a factor, for sure. Yeah. And within the next couple of decades, we're going to be closer to 40, 50 percent, given the growth rates. And this is something Jack Bogle, not exactly, you know, an enemy of indexing, said that this kind of concentration would probably not be in the national interest. So I see that the common ownership theory is just one part of a multi-headed hydra that is the, the gigantism that the, the inexorable logic of index funds and the economics of index funds means that the big will become bigger. And at some point, we are going to be in a world where essentially they control the majority of most major companies in America and even in the world. But to, to get there, I, we I have to ignore index funds. To, to get there, we have to ignore 2020 and 2021. The past two years have not been about indexing, have not been about passive investment. It's been about meme stocks and Robin Hood and actively trading and buy this, sell that. You know, the, the mind share that active um, investing and trading has grabbed from passive since the financial lockdown has begun ha has told you that half the world are, are closet day traders just yeah. waiting for an opportunity to come out of their um, spidey holes and uh, start trading. H how do you explain the rise of everything we've seen over the past two years in the face of efficiency and low cost uh, of of the passive side of the world? Well, fundamentally, I, I think hope springs eternal. Everybody thinks and wants to try and beat the index. Everybody wants to get rich. And we've seen throughout history these these manias. Sometimes they've lasted for a few weeks in weird esoteric corners of the market. Sometimes they've been, you know, countrywide or even global, such as the dot-com bubble, famously. Uh, and over time, they, they tend to end always the same way in a massive burst and people get their faces ripped off <laughs> and there'll be congressional hearings and so on. I think this is a little bit different in that there are secular changes in the financial system, such as free trading, gamified apps, social media, that means right. that this is probably going to be a little bit different. At some point, things will settle down, but it's not going to settle down to what we saw before. But even this year, a year that has, I agree, the past 18 months characterized and sort of largely by the, the rise of retail trading, and active funds have actually taken in billions of dollars this year. Right. It's more, it's almost the exception that proves the rule. That even in a year where this has been going on, an active has had inflows for the first time in over a decade. Yeah. Essentially, hundreds of billions of dollars have gone out every year from active funds year after year after year after year, essentially for 15, 16 years since the dot-com bubble. And this year, they've got taken in, I think, $150 billion. Passive has still taken in, I think, close to five, six hundred billion dollars. And if you include market gains, we're still saying it's, it's gaining market share, it's growing, and it's broadening out. Index bond funds, passive bond ETFs, they are now growing. So what was primarily an equity phenomenon is now gaining group, setting roots in far broader swaths of markets. So definitely this year is all about active. But we know that the data will show that the majority of active managers at the end of 2021 will have underperformed. And over the 10 years, 
past 10 years, the vast majority of them will underperform. And the money will keep shifting because a lot of this is on autopilot. Target date return funds, pension funds that know the data, right. they will just put money in cheap index funds and forget about it, essentially, and do better than most of the active traders out there who sadly, I think, you know, at some point, some of them will become millionaires, but most of them will end up losing a lot of money and it'll be a very sad uh, denouement. more. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Yeah, f FOMO is a big deal, and as much as people like saving money and being passive and guaranteeing themselves some beta, you know, the idiot next door buys um, some hot stock or some uh, crypto coin and makes a ton of money, and suddenly everybody thinks they're day traders. <laughs> so, so exactly. let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about. Um, uh, you mentioned smart beta and factor investing seems to have been struggling. Uh, over the past couple of years, value-oriented funds like DFA have seen a perform performance lag. Value has underperformed growth for more than a decade. How do you put that into context? We we thought we saw uh, factor investing and, and the Fama French factors as, as a sea change. Is this going to turn out to be a temporary phenomenon or, or, or is this the underperformance temporary? Uh, it's it's one of my favorite themes. I mean, apart from sort of passive investing, it's the quant investing is one of my sort of main favorite subjects out there. I think, I mean, clearly factor investing has fallen out of favor, uh, primarily because, I mean, some factors have done well, momentum has done well for quite a while, but the big mainstream ones, like value especially, has had a awful run. I, I've seen studies that show it's done the worst since basically financial records began essentially like <laughs> two three hundred years ago wow. um and most most notably a lot of quant hedge funds you know the more sophisticated complex strategies also did suffer a lot in 2020 uh, because we entered an entirely new market regime and models that were trained on existing financial data uh essentially you know data that, that didn't have any pandemics in them um just just couldn't tackle so they 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 fizzled but I think the broader phenomenon of factor investing and quant investing certainly is still alive and well, because fundamentally, I do believe the data on these factors is, is pretty robust. Uh, the problem is, I think, that on, when it comes to the factor stuff, I think for a lot of ordinary investors, the discipline needed to hold on to them is so enormous right. that the vast majority of people should stick to boring, plain, dumb beta, as you know, one might call it, because... Essentially, yes, over a 20, 30 year period, you might do better in a value fund. But, you know, when you've got a 10, 15 year drawdown like we've had now, the, the long run, you know, in the long run, we're all dead. Right. Uh, right. It just becomes so difficult to hold on. The reason why these factors work is because of these drawdowns to a large extent. Right. Wes um, Gray famously said even God couldn't stay invested in a uh, deep value fund. 
No, I think I think uh, I think God would have bailed out a few years ago. <laughs> I think it's only a few very dedicated value people and Cliff Asness left standing in that in that trade. So, but it's so, had a good year now, right? Yeah, no, year. this year this year has been good for both both some value players and some of the quant funds. Let's talk about that a second. You you cover quant funds in the FT, mm-hmm. and it kind of seems like. I don't know, the past 18 months, 24 months, coverage, news flow on it has really died down, perhaps following uh, some softer performance of, of the big quants. What's going on in the world of quant? Well, I think broadly speaking, it's because, you know, I talk about the culture of journalism, right? I mean, we new is better than old, bad is better than good, and kind of nothing to write home about is nothing to write about essentially right so when quant was considered hot and sexy and fun and that's what where all the money was going there was naturally a lot of coverage on that and when quant funds had a terrible time in 2020 a lot of them like famously even renaissance you know the, the right. big daddy of the quant world had a terrible year in many of its public funds um People wrote a lot about that, including me. But now it's kind of just generally a story of improving returns. Nothing kind of sensational, nothing that's going to make the front page of the journal or, or the FT. But, you know, it's just better across the board. AQR is a big factor. Quant fund is doing better as well. Uh, but for the reason why I spent so much time thinking about this and covering about this is just fundamentally, whether are investors going to be using more technology to invest more systematically in the future or less. And I think the direction of travel is just 100% clear. So that's why I spent a lot of time on this, because if you want to understand how markets actually function today, let alone how they are going to function in a decade's time, you need to understand the quant ecosystem. So I'm just trying to go where the puck is heading. And I think we are going to see convergence as more and more discretionary people kind of become more quanty. And some of the quants even add a bit of a discretionary overlay that this kind of um, always a little bit blurry line between systematic and discretionary investing is is going to get washed out a little bit, I think, in the coming 10 years or so. Let's talk a little bit about skating to where the puck might be going. You, you briefly mentioned um, direct indexing. What do you think about this? It's small, but it's rapidly growing, and it's a very interesting take on the concept of passive investing. No, it is a fascinating trend, and I do actually think it has a great future. Uh, people clearly do want customization. I mean, I might make like it in, in many areas as well. We've gone used to so many other parts of life. That makes perfect sense that this is coming to indexing as well. But I still think that the vast majority of people still want simplicity, and especially in their financial products. So you and I, you know, slightly... M- slightly more interest in these things than the average punter on the street might want to fiddle around with a broad, let's say, a a Vanguard total stock market fund and take away the companies that might do stuff we find reprehensible or maybe American Airlines dumped you from a flight and you're still angry about that. Or you might want to cut out your employer, right? Because you don't want to have double economic risk or exposure. That's the big one. You're already working there. Yeah. So that makes perfect sense. But the vast majority of people don't want to fiddle around with this, right? I mean, who likes doing their taxes? Nobody. I mean, so 
I can see it as a really useful tool for a lot of financial advisors, but most people are still going to be basically better off and prefer buying broad index funds. So I see this, it can easily become a trillion dollar thing, but I do not see it as the truth of indexing 3.0, as some people see it, nor as a viable, genuine competitor in size and scale to ETFs and some traditional index mutual funds. So it is a huge trend that's definitely going to grow. But right now, I feel some of the hype around it is probably people are getting a little bit over their skis. Yeah, I can see that. That that, that makes some sense. I'm I'm intrigued by it, but I I want to get your take. So I only have you for a a finite amount of time. Let's jump to uh, some of our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests, starting with... Tell us what you're streaming these days. Give us your favorite Netflix, Amazon podcast. What's keeping you entertained during lockdown? Well, I mean, I just had uh, our third child. So I have to admit my uh, sort of entertainment uh, time budget has been a little bit destroyed lately. Uh, but during lockdown, one of my, my main guilty pleasures when I actually did have a little bit of time between work, childcare, and, and writing the book was actually re-watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer, a series for my teens. <laughs> okay. And I thought it held up really well. It was quite a lot of fun. Um, so, yeah, I still recommend that to people. It's still a very, it was a nostalgic, guilty pleasure. Um, I recently watched Turning Point, the 9-11 uh, Netflix documentary, which was excellent. I knew a lot of the history of it again, but something, sometimes putting it all in one place together in a nice bow just really worked. I thought that series was really good. Um, I watched the Loki Marvel series, which mm-hmm. was entertaining. I mean, I've got kids, so I had to get Disney Plus. Right. Um, on podcasts, obviously, Masters of Business, I hear great things about it. You've got fantastic guests, especially today. Uh, but New Bazaar. Uh, it's a podcast started by two of my former colleagues at the FT. I've listened to a few episodes of that. That sounds really promising. I, I like a lot of the economic uh, podcasts. I tend to be more opportunistic when it comes to podcasts. So when there is a specific topic or guest that I really want right. to get into, but I don't have it on in the background. It's more for specific reasons. I get you. Uh, yeah. And then, yes, essentially, yes, I'm constantly entertained by the antics of my children which never seemed to end, but maybe will at some point, and I'll obviously start missing it then. Tell us about your mentors. Who are the folks who helped shape your career? I wouldn't... I mean, mentor is such a big word, uh, and I don't want to sort of downplay their, their importance, but maybe... Um, who who so, are the influential uh, people I, who affected you? Yeah. Well, let's say three. So Paul McNamara was my, my boss at my financial journalism job covering Islamic finance in the Middle East. Uh, He was a very acerbic uh, guy, and I loved him to bits. And he gave me my first job, and I learned a lot from him. Mostly just that sense of actually enjoying the job, because it's a hell of a lot of fun. Uh, When I joined Bloomberg News, uh, I had a guy called Chris Kirkham, was my team leader, and he was phenomenal. He was also slightly more on the the gruff and grumpy side of the spectrum, but just a phenomenal editor, uh, a really great guy who, you know, Bloomberg can be a little bit tough at times and he knew the right time to yell at you and the the right time to sort of take a metaphorical arm around your shoulder i remember especially one time i i made a genuine screw up like a, a huge mistake and it was the and he didn't yell at me he said look i think you know you made a mistake so i'm not going to say anything more go out and have a drink and expense it and we'll speak tomorrow <laughs> and i really appreciated that 
Uh, and at the FT, my first editor, the guy that had to sort of beat my copy into FT shape was a guy called James Drummond. Again, uh, very much on the on the grumpy side of the spectrum. Uh, but he was great. And I've learned from so many people. Um, and John Authors, Gillian Tett, James McIntosh, are three phenomenal colleagues, two of which sadly aren't uh, with the FT anymore. Uh, they've gone to the enemies at Bloomberg and the Journal. Um, and just so many people elsewhere in the industry. And it is really an area where you can just learn so much from people. Like Jason Zweig at the Journal, right? I mean, a phenomenal journalist still that just churns out stuff that every time I say, I wish I'd written that. So yeah, I think that, that's, that's my mentors are all the people I read and love their work, essentially. That, that's the key line is when, when you see something, you say, damn, I wish I wrote that. that that's how you know someone's doing really, uh, really good work. Um, let's talk about uh, everybody's favorite question, reading. What are some of your favorite books and what are you reading recently? Well, I've got a backlog because of the work related to my book. Uh, given all the work in 2020, that, that was the one thing that just had to end, like any sort of pleasure reading. But I picked up again The Emperor of All Maladies. Sure. Um, a book on the history of cancer. It came out over a decade ago. My wife had al already read it. Uh, but I've wanted to read it for a long time, so I finally got around to reading that. I'm almost done. So I've also started reading The World for Sale by two former colleagues, History of Busy Commodity Trading. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, I'm very angry at, at Jack Farchi and, and Javier Blas for leaving the FT and joining the evil Bloomberg Death Star, but um, it's a phenomenal book, so I'm enjoying that, though I'm only some 50, 60 pages in. Huh, really, really quite interesting. What sort of advice would you have for a recent college grad who was interested in a career uh, in financial journalism? Ooh, financial journalism is hard. I mean, read a lot, a lot, and maybe develop a niche that, uh, that you know really well because uh, that can help get you your first job. Uh, and, you know, this is advice that lots of trolls give all journalists on the Internet. But, you know, learning to code or at least understanding some of those sides is incredibly helpful. The days when journalism used to hoover up sort of humanities graduates, uh, I think, are over. I think the value of a journalism degree is primarily in the piece of paper saying that you are a journalism graduate, but in practice, it is pretty uh, minimal compared to the practical experience. I'd rather have somebody who, let's say, studied finance, took an internship at a bank or an investment fund, absolutely hated it, and tried to get a, a, an internship at the FT or Bloomberg or the Journal. I think that's far better than having you know studied as I did, sadly, journalism and history and international relations. It's worked out for me, but it's going to become progressively harder, I think, for the next generations of journalists. Huh. And I would, I mean, this is also well-trodden ground, but we desperately need more diversity in journalism. So I joke a lot that I'm the Norwegian diversity candidate at the FT. We, don't, we only have one other journal, uh, Norwegian journalist, but... Um, we we need more people from all walks of life uh, applying and thinking about careers in financial journalism. So if anybody's listening to this and is mildly curious, then drop me a line. I will jump on the phone or Skype with anybody uh, because it's something I, I care quite a lot about. Hmm. And our final question, 
What do you know about the world of investing, finance, uh, journalism, indexing, quantitative investing today that you wish you knew when you were first getting started 20 or so years ago? Hmm. Well, aside from maybe if I had a time machine, I'd, I'd travel back and tell myself to buy long-dated, out-of-money Apple calls. Well, that's ago. a cheat. This isn't uh, a. This is less a time <laughs> travel question and more a process question. What 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 have you incorporated into your process now that would have been helpful to do, you know, years ago? Uh, I, there are certain things I've always been good at, like taking notes, keeping notes, writing stuff down. Has always been a fairly handy mnemonic tool for me. It helps me remember things. That once I've written something down, I remember it pretty well. And I see quite a lot of people that aren't good at writing stuff down. And if it works electronically, otherwise do that. But that's not advice I give to myself. I'd say, I mean, this is very sad and and tragic, but very cynical and and useful. Uh, I wish somebody told me this, um, and it works in many professions, but every job is sales. Yeah. It's it's the dirty truth that people don't want to always say, but every job in sales is sales. And when you're young, everybody has this sort of realization. Some people realize it in the mid-20s, some people in the 30s, maybe some people later. But you always think that you know good work will always get recognized. And it can. Again, you can be lucky or you can be unlucky, but every job is sales. Um, and that is certainly not something I appreciate for a long time. Um, and yes, it's it's not the fun, sexy, inspiring piece of advice, but it's probably something that more people uh, could do with hearing. Thanks, Robin, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Robin Wigglesworth. He is the financial correspondent for the Financial Times and author of Trillions, a new book on indexing and passive investing. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the nearly 400 prior discussions we've had over the past, is it seven years? Yeah, since 2014. You can find that at Spotify, iTunes, wherever you uh, get your podcasts. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column at Bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together. Each week, my director of research is Michael Batnick. My producer is Paris Wald. My project manager is Atika Valbron. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.